All right, quick quiz. Does everybody know what Captain Ahab and Anakin Skywalker have in common? No. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I have way too much fun sometimes because I get with a chat GBT and, and I, it's, it's for work and everything, but I actually had it bring up a, a, a photo. I had it design Captain Ahab and, and Anakin Skywalker with the white whale and a lightsaber. I don't know that it did it well, <laughs> but this is what it gave me. So this, this is somehow Anakin Skywalker. I, I guess that's the figure in the back with the lightsaber and Captain Ahab's in, in the front and we have the white whale there. So really what this is, you know, that we had those choose your own adventure books in, in the, the 80s. I, I don't know if they've really continued in the tradition, but you were able to, to, to pick the path you want to go as you're reading these books. This is a, a choose your, your own illusion sermon. So you, you can be in, in, in Camp Captain Ahab or, or you can be in Camp Anakin Skywalker. Either way, hopefully you'll, you'll get my point here. What I want to, to think about is ways that, that these characters lost the plot. So the next one I have here, I think it's Captain Ahab is the next one that I have here. Famous scene, end of Moby Dick. Any, anybody know Moby Dick? Anybody else read it besides myself? Okay. He really liked whales. Like Herman Melville, you, you read that book, he has like a hundred pages on the anatomy of a whale. And I'm just like, okay, I, I don't need to understand whales this much. But there's this amazing scene at the end. Captain Ahab, if you don't know, he's, he's this classic tragic figure because Captain Ahab was single-mindedly obsessed with this white whale. And he, what is a captain supposed to do? Lead the ship. And what does he famously do? Abandons the ship, destroys his crew, almost everybody's lost in this, this pursuit trying to find this white whale. And he ends up dying in the, this activity of, of trying to get revenge for this, this whale, which, you know, I, I don't know that it was equal on both parts, but according to the book, it probably was. So Anakin Skywalker, famous. So, so now I'll, I'll flip for my Star Wars folks, right? What, what is famous about Anakin Skywalker? He became... Anyway, Darth Vader, yes. But he was this prophesied about Jedi. And by the way, if you ever need to know that, that our education system needs some help, I, I grabbed these memes from the internet. You can read the second one here. This is the meme that came up here that the originals, you were supposed to destroy the Sith, not join them, right? Anakin was meant to, to be like the, the most Jedi of Jedi, to, to help solve the whole thing, but he joined the Sith. And then one of the memes that came after this with terrible spelling, y'all, when you, our friend, remind the teacher about the homework, you were supposed to destroy the Sith, not join them. I was so disappointed, kids. It, what, what's the proper your there? No apostrophe with an R. Come on, right? That kid needs to be paying attention to their teacher and do that homework. And then I, I threw the sports one in here, too. You were the chosen one, Falcons. You were supposed to bring pride to Atlanta, not shame, which coming from Atlanta, I, I, felt, I felt that one in my core a little bit here. So the, the theme that I want you to hear, whichever illusion you want to go with, is how we can lose the plot how we can lose the plot. If you're a captain, you forget that you're supposed to care for the ship and, and for your crew, and, and you think it's all about you. You're Anakin Skywalker. You, you lose the plot. You forget about what the Jedi are supposed to do in the universe, and you end up just pursuing you know, your, your own misery and anger and hatred and all this stuff. You just flesh these things out. This idea of losing the plot is something I think that we can hold a mirror to up in, in ourselves and look at this and say, how have we lost the plot? You see this in, in history, you see this in corporate America, Whole Foods created for this uh, idea of, of bringing Whole Foods and health and everything to people at affordable prices. What are they known for? <laughs> 
they're rather expensive. They lost the plot, you know? Google had a, a theme in the very early days, do no evil. Then they got a, <laughs> and you laugh. <laughs> and they begin chasing profit, right? We, we lose the plot on what we were created to do. So how might we ourselves lose the plot? That we can be the right people in the right place at the right time, but we forget ourselves. A fatalistic point of view can excuse anything. And, and this is something I, I, hopefully we've been trying to avoid as a church, this fatalistic idea of, well, it is going to be what it is. You know, things are just going to march forward because that's the way that they're meant to be. We did the best that we could. Or people say this, right? I'm sure your heart was in the right place. Like, like everything's falling to pieces around us, but oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure everything's going to work out. I'm sure everything's fine. Paul, in his letters to the, to the church, to the Colossians, doesn't seem to have that understanding. He's telling them to make a stand, to change things, to not accept just the way that things are going to come. He's, saying, he's telling you, remember who you are. Remember who your God is. Remember why we have this gospel. Don't just accept the, the world falling apart around you and just say, well, I guess whatever you say is going to be okay. Remember what we're about. So this week we're going to be looking at Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Uh, we've had a few themes so far. The church is contending with a heretical teaching, Gnosticism. We talked about that. Hopefully that was illuminating. They wanted secret knowledge. There you go, illumination. <laughs> and they preached asceticism. And, and that's a, a term we don't use too much, but that's depriving yourself of things to seek holiness. This is famously where people are whipping themselves on their back. They're thinking, if I can put my body through some physical pain, I must be getting holier. If I can deprive myself of cream and sugar and, and whatever I, I desire, then I must be becoming holier. I have to punish myself because the flesh is evil, and therefore I know I'm closer to God as long as I'm miserable. That's really a asceticism in, in a nutshell. And then we talked about the supremacy of Christ, but the, the whole hook on that one was it's not as we think, right? The supremacy of Christ is not a, a militant king on a horse when Jesus came the first time, right? It was Jesus on the cross. That's where we saw the supremacy of Christ was through his death and through his resurrection. But we saw that he's before all things, he's above all things, and his best is in the death and sacrifice. And then Leah last week uh, walked us through how Jesus is the treasure that we're after, and we should be on guard about anything that distracts us from that pursuit. So we're going to continue in chapter two right now. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. 
There's a lot in there. This is a, a very densely packed bit of scripture that, that's really espousing one idea, which is you're free, church. <laughs> you're free. Do you realize that you're free? Do you understand what it means to actually be free? And what do we think it is whenever we hear freedom? I think that it's a very common, maybe immature response that I had to, to freedom, to understand that it's like a lack of accountability. I can do what I want, and you can't tell me otherwise. Like this idea that I can, I can do—I remember when my parents dropped me off at college, and they, they, I was in my dorm room, they left, and I'm like, I could do whatever I want, and I'm going to— go for a walk. <laughs> but like, I didn't have to ask permission. I, I, I had the, this freedom to go do, I was probably a nerdy goody two shoes, which is why <laughs> other people might have different stories. But this lack of accountability, lack of consequences is also something that I think people want. They think if I'm free, I should be able to do whatever I want. And if something happens, well, that's just not fair. I'm free. So I should be able to, you know, shoot a gun and if I shoot my own foot, well, that doesn't seem fair. You know, I'm free to do what I want. And we have this conflict, I think, with what freedom is actually meant to be and this kind of innate desire just to be Lord of ourselves where we can control everything and there's no consequences for anything that we do. So uh, we all know our our 90s ska music. I ask this from time to time and and y'all continually disappoint me, but Five Iron Frenzy, Two Hands. Three hands, four. Okay, we're we're getting there. I they're they're a fantastic. I know Jeremy knows them too, so I'll I'll, I'll count you in that in that mix. Um, there's this song they have called Anthem, and the whole time I was working on my sermon, this just was like going through my head, and it was. I just I think it's important that we all kind of look at this. It's it's a pretty punk song for the '90s, and and for for Christian boys again. Like this was this was heartfelt rebellion in my soul. I, I absolutely love this, but I, I want you to hear these words. Um, pushing us a drug that you call freedom and democracy. Promise us that selfishness is the means for happiness. I burned that bridge so long ago that I can hardly see anything but solace in what freedom means to me. I can't fall anymore for some silver-tongued song. Freedom isn't free, so let me say what freedom means to me. I don't know why I dropped that last word. It cannot mean to serve ourselves. That doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean to give the license to seek ourselves in anything. That would be slavery to ourselves. It isn't free. Jesus Christ, the only thing that freedom means to me. Hopefully, you've learned enough that, that when people give a rallying cry of freedom, it's often something different than what Christ gives us when he gives us freedom. People espouse freedom, and it, and it stirs our soul as every time that Mel Gibson calls out, freedom, and you feel this viscerally in your bones, and this awakening something, which I will say is good and right, but then the details get all kind of confused when we try to live that out, because my freedom seems to conflict with their freedom, and what I want to do, and what they want to do, and wait, are we even talking about the same thing when we say freedom? Free, free to, it's an um sound, but yeah, I I hear you. That's fair. Freedom, though, is one of the few self-affirming things we get in Scripture. What what do I mean by that? This is Galatians five one. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It freedom is this innate goodness. 
Christ did this work for us so that we would be free. It's, it's a self-affirming reality that we were made to be free. We were made to experience this. He, he didn't set us free to, to enslave us once again. He didn't set us free so that he could reveal his glory even. Like, that's not what this says. It's for freedom. We were made for this. And I believe that in our souls, we kind of know this. We, we look at the systems of this world. We look at the things that force our hand. We look at the, the calculations we have to do. And we have to realize, I don't feel free. I'm meant for something better than this. And I want to tell you, church, yes, we are. We're meant to be free from sin. We're meant to be free from sin's consequences. We're meant to be free from, from the, this conflict of brother to brother. We're meant to, for something better than this world. Do we realize that or do we even understand what freedom is or have we lost the plot that we can't even recognize freedom when Christ sets us free and we continue to live as if we weren't? Freedom from the judgment of other people, the scripture tells us. Freedom from disqualification, Colossians 2 tells us. Freedom from the world's way, Colossians tells us. Freedom from the rules of the world. Freedom from self. Freedom from sensual indulgence. An immaturity will argue for freedom from accountability. An immaturity will tell us that we want freedom from consequences. I should be able to do whatever I want. But we understand, I think, with age maybe, or maybe with some hard lessons in life, that that's just disconnected from reality. It's disconnected from wisdom. And things don't work out that way. And if they do, it's just very barely for just a short period of time, and then those consequences come cascading. It's the harsh reality of this too, right? But, but whenever we, we had a friend who um, was involved in some very terrible times in his youth and he was involved in a break-in and um, the, the person who had the house came out with a gun and his friend shot him and, and he, he died and he was arrested. He's put in jail for murder. And every year he, he, he got out after a number of years and he served his time and he had lives with the consequences of that actions to this day. And he sent the family letters, then there's monetary compensation, and there's all this stuff. But there's nothing you can do to undo that action. The consequence of that haunts him. He can be set free from so many things. You can be set free from guilt and shame and condemnation and all this hope that we have for tomorrow. But these consequences remain. When trust is broken, when we have these problems, there is a consequence that, that it, it's the only way that this can be. But what we're seeing in this passage is freedom as the Lord calls us to it. So much of this passage helps us to identify what is godly versus what is worldly. What the summation that I think is going to see pride versus humility. I want you to hear this. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Y'all ever know somebody like this? <laughs> right? Paul doesn't even seem to care to argue here whether their experience is real or not. Think, think about that. It's not about whether this person really had this experience or not. He's just like, that's not the point. That's a profound freedom from this. It's not about whether they, this story is true or false. He's like, but it, what about Jesus? If you're telling your story, if, it, if you think that this is all about you, you're missing the plot. 
you're missing what the intent of this whole thing is. If you can have an experience with God and you walk out on the other side thinking, well, the center of the universe is right here in me. The most important thing is myself and where I go from this. Paul's like, no, you're missing the whole thing. It's about Jesus. It's about him. I think we have this understanding or this fear, right, that if that's what another person has seen or experienced or what they've gone through, it must mean that they're better than me. And so we hear their stories, we hear these accounts, and we think, well, I haven't seen that. I haven't experienced that. Well, God must love them more. So I want to follow them. I want to get what they're having. And we end up pursuing these other people. We end up pursuing other people's experiences instead of following Christ for ourselves. And we're hurting ourselves because what we're trying to do is be like this other person. And if they're not calling us to Jesus, that's a false teacher. I have found such health in the, the idea of the naturally supernatural. This idea that, yes, these things are true. Yes, there's a reality beyond what we see here. But we really walk through it in a way that is very relatable. The, the way that, that I am called to experience the Lord fits with the fabric of my life because that's how the Lord is meant to be realized. It's not always going to be some amazing thing that, that just like rips me out of the, the, the understanding of the relationships I have and, and throws me into an alternate reality like some, you know, drug trip. It's meant to be within the confines of this body, these emotions, this soul, the relationships, because God is here with us here and now. And that's where we need him anyway. That's what we want is this world to be transformed and, and ourselves to be in communion with the Father. This idea of losing the plot, when we see that the reality is found in Jesus, and that's what he's telling us here. We lose sight of Jesus because we focus on rules. Christians can be unrecognizable when we lose the plot. You look at this throughout scripture and people lose the plot all the time. Mary and Martha, right? Losing the plot, why? Because they were so focused on service. I mean, that, that seems good, like Christians should serve. And so, so we wanna be busy doing the work and everything and, and they lose sight of Jesus in their midst because they're fo so focused on doing, on service. They lost the plot. Jesus was there, be with him. Judas lost the plot. Jesus wasn't what he wanted. It wasn't what he expected. Where, where's the kingdom? Where, where are the rulers? Why are the Romans still in charge? Jesus is here. Well, let's set things right. He was so upset about this, he lost the plot. He mistook the Messiah for, for failing him because he lost the plot. Peter, walking on water, lost the plot took his eyes off of Jesus. He's walking on water, <laughs> and yet he looks at the waves, yet he looks at distractions. He lost the plot, and he found his way to begin sinking. There are way, way, way more examples all throughout Scripture. But I think that this is the problem we have when we look at rules versus wisdom. What's this, this nuance between asceticism, this idea of, of punishing ourselves, this idea that, that I need to deprive myself of, of benefits. I need to deprive myself of, of food and, and I have to make sure that, that I'm suffering in my flesh. What's the difference between asceticism and fasting, which Jesus calls us to do, right? 
What, well, one is a rule-based thing. One is saying, I have to do this in order to try to make myself holy. The other thing is an invitation to explore what the Lord is doing right now. It's a, a depriving of myself and other, so I can actually see him more clearly. One is focused on me. One is focused on him. That shift in focus is the very difference between rules saying, I must walk this way, and wisdom, which invites me to walk this way invites me to walk towards Jesus who gives me this wisdom. So the question, I think, is answered in the why. Why do we do the things that we do? Are we following rules or are we following our Lord? Which one are we after? Have you ever noticed that sometimes there's, there's actual conflicts in Proverbs? Like, like they, they contradict themselves, in fact, very specifically. Look at this from Proverbs 26. This is not like the author forgot what he said earlier. It's verse four followed by verse five. Okay, this is, this is not like he, he doesn't know. Verse four, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you yourself will be just like him. That makes sense, right? Verse five, answer a fool according to his folly or he will be wise in his own eyes. Okay, I'm talking to a fool. What do I do? Like, I don't know. <laughs> you have told me scripture to do both. How do I know? Well, what is the Lord actually inviting me to right now? This is wisdom versus rules. Is, is it wisdom to say, I'm going to eat every Swiss cake roll in this box of 12 that I got? <laughs> no, but a rule might tell you don't eat any, right? Wisdom might also be don't eat one. I don't, but that, I'll leave that for you to decide. Maybe, maybe two. <laughs> But this, this difference between wisdom and rules is the difference between losing our life and living our life. It's the difference between what we give to the Lord being of value and something that we treasure, something that's beautiful and something that's worked out versus something that we're afraid of, we feel shame about, and we pull back and we punish and think it's terrible, but, but I guess you can have the, the, this day. What's the plot? What does good look like? What am I shooting for? Going back to the scripture in verse 19. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? It's connection to Jesus. It's growth. It's remembering our, our death and the freedom that we have from these worldly ways. I, I love the ways that, that it's phrased here. It's not just Jesus as a teacher and just following these things that he said and following these rules. It's this invitation to be connected to him. All right, pop quiz time. What do chickens, cockroaches, snapping turtles, snakes, and flies have in common? This is, again, an AI-generated image. I, I don't think it knows what a cockroach is. Don't worry about it too much. <laughs> oh, that is true. The chicken is. AI's got a long way to go, y'all. Don't, don't, don't worry. It's not taking over the world anytime soon. They can all live without their heads. They can all live without their heads. And false teachers. <laughs> Let's put them in the mix, too. They lose their heads. What, is, what a crazy thing. Like when we realize what this passage said, they have lost connection with the head. What do you think? He's talking about being beheaded. 
What do we know if you're beheaded as a human? You're dead. You've lost connection with the head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body is going to grow and work. He's saying if you have lost connection with Jesus, you're lost. You're dead. You're not a chicken. You're not a snapping turtle. You're, these are false teachers who are, are dead. If you're trying, if you've lost the plot, if you have forgotten your Jesus, if you're following rules instead of following your master, it's like you're decapitated. You can't work that way. You can't live that way. This is not going to work out for you. There's this unusual phrase in here, right? You died to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. What? what? Why, why you got to use that phrase? What are we talking about here? And, and there's actually a lot of scholarly debate about this, right? That, that people are thinking about whether this is going to be like earth, wind, fire, and water, like these pagan gods, which has some reason to believe that that might be what they're talking about here, or if it's something else. It's also in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. But again, it's actually helpful. We died with Christ. What does it mean, though, we say, whenever my heart keeps beating? We're like using these metaphors, right, in Christian. We, it, we, it's like we're so stuck with these Christian ways of expressing things that we forget how weird it sounds. You died with Christ. I don't remember that. <laughs> he was on the cross. I'm living my life. I, 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 was, I was sorrowful. I, I, I felt bad for my sins. I repented for my sins. What does it mean when we say death? When we talk about baptism, we talk about being buried with Christ and then raised with him. Well, but, but I, again, we're saying that it's a metaphor, right? Because I didn't actually die and I wasn't actually buried. But, but what this is saying, it's actually helping us understand we die to something. And it's a very real death. It's not this idea of just metaphorically remember that maybe it's kind of like a death whenever you were so you were so sad. It's saying something else very profound here that we had a death to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. What did we die to? I died to my brother's judgment over me. Wow. <laughs> that is profound now. Because sometimes we live in fear of, of what the other person next to me is going to think about me. And we don't want to do certain things because they might look at me through, a, you know, little squinted eyes and be like, oh, I don't know about that guy. I died to my brother's judgment over me. It's Christ alone. I, I, his judgment over me is what matters. Not, not Peter's. Not, not, not Tom down the street. Not my sister, not my parents. I die to that. That judgment has no power over me. Whoa, now we're getting somewhere. Now I understand the elemental spiritual force of this world, this world, those spiritual forces which held me back can no longer hold me back. I have died to that judgment over me. What else? We die to sin. We died to the religious rules and regulations. These things which controlled ourselves, these things which told us where to step, where to walk, how to do these things, they exacted power over us, and now they do not. But do we live like we're free? Do we actually embrace that we're free from these things, or do we continue to act the same exact way, and you look at me before and after, and you think, 
you say something happened, but you're living exactly the same way. I don't, I don't know that you're doing anything differently for that. There was a, a writing from um, N.T. Wright who says he, this way, that, that it seems to refer to spirits, but could also refer to the forces that press upon people due to the doctrines of men. And I think that that's a good way of thinking about this. The doctrines of men press upon us things, and we can be free from that. But here's the thing. We're not going to get away from the supremacy of Christ. Some of these things that we die to, magical thinking. I talk about this a lot. I think that we, we put on Jesus this magical thinking of, of making him, like I said before, this Superman figure who's, you know, who can fly and who can, is, has all the strength in the world. We forget that he was very real a man who had limited physical strength, who whenever his, his heart stopped beating and his lungs stopped breathing, he died a very real physical death. And that's so vital to the scripture that we don't think of him as some spiritual force that, that is just otherworldly and like alien to us. He was very relatably human. And that matters. Magical thinking, karma, legalism, relativism, individualism, tribalism, experientialism. All of these things are things that we have died to. These things, these elemental spiritual forces of this world. People still in the church struggle with karma. They think that, that if I do good, good will come to me. And maybe the switch that I make is when I became a Christian, I'm going to say, well, God will repay me with good because I do good. That's karma with extra steps. <laughs> That's not grace. Grace is the idea that you don't deserve it. <laughs> and guess what? God's favor is for you. It's the exact opposite of karma. It's this idea that, oh my goodness, no, you are not worthy. But Jesus loves you and his goodness is for you. It's not about what you put out there and just hoping it's going to come back for you. I want to spend a little bit of note on this one. Yes, I mentioned the other ones. Legalism, clearly in there. Relativism, individualism, tribalism. Experientialism is, I think, a really hard one for us, particularly in the charismatic churches, to realize that it's something that we're dead to. We think that my experiences have got to be the highest bar for my success in the kingdom of God. If I'm not experiencing things, if I'm not seeing things, if I'm not feeling things, if these things aren't happening, then nothing's true. And I think that this is so dangerous because it, it crawls in and then you feel inferior. You're thinking, I don't hear the Lord the way that other people seem to, so therefore everything must be broken. And we feel shame and we pull back because we think my experiences must be the most important thing here. That's not what we're seeing in Colossians. It's not this call to experiences, which I do believe in, we are called to experience him. We are called to know him. But, but this idea that the most important thing in the room is your experience of God is a self-serving, missing the plot history of the church. You are not the most important thing here. The gospel of Jesus is why we are gathered in this place. And there's a big, big difference on what we come together for. You can go to a concert to have an experience. You can go to a, to a, a show and, and, and feel something in your bones. You can watch Star Wars and, and see this and feel something. That's not what this is about. Because it's not about you and your feelings and whatever you're going to experience. It's about the kingdom come. It's about the gospel of Jesus, whether you're aware of that or not. I've been seeing and, and uh, saying this a lot, that, that if... 
I, I think we treat our spiritual walk sometimes like a, a force of nature, and we think revival would come if we could just X, Y, and Z. That, that if we set the stage properly, if we go ahead and, and make sure that, that we sing the right songs, that we, we preach the right messages, that we read the right scriptures, revival has to come to the church. We're mistaking why we're doing the things that we're doing. The, the vineyard teaching I love on worship, and, and I think that this is kind of what Ethan and I are diving into today, it's this idea, again, that we set the stage for him to come and be Lord and get out of the way. It's not about whoever's on the stage. It's why we want the table and not the pulpit to be central, because it's not about us. It's not about my understanding. It's not about how good we can do these certain things. It's about him actually ruling and reigning. And God has a personality. God has distinct things that he likes and doesn't like, and that's okay. He's not some theoretical abstract notion of good, like yin and yang, and this idea, again, of, of just like a personalityless blob of a floating thing up there in space. He loved Israel, the person, <laughs> and blessed the world through him. Why? Scripture tells you why. Because he did. <laughs> There's, it's not because you were the most numerous. It's not because you were the best. I like you. I love you. I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to choose you because I chose you. Like, that's God. He has a personality. That's a good thing. But that means he's not a force of nature that we just abstractly say, well, if I can do the right things and avoid the wrong things, then everything's going to be right and everything will work out the way that it should. No, you have to follow him to hear his voice, to say, I choose you and I don't choose myself. It's a whole different ballgame when we engage with God as a person rather than an idea. I think we have this idea of if you build it, they will come. That is not scriptural. But we think that way, that if we live our lives a certain way, if we build the church the right certain way, he'll have to come. That's the only logical conclusion. We've done all the right things. Why, why isn't it happening? I, I've done everything I should. We are called to see him. It's like we're trying to set a trap for the Holy Spirit <laughs> and that he can't help but move. But he is not an impersonal force. He's a person. Jesus is supreme awe-inducing, God in flesh, in whom the deity dwells in fullness, walking, talking, healing, doing Jesus. Maybe he liked chocolate. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. <laughs> but he has these things that aren't right or wrong, but that are just unique to the personality of who God is. This is what I mean by losing the plot. We lose sight. We lose connection with the head, with Jesus. We make it about our own theology. We make it about our own traditions. We make it about our rules, our understanding, our comforts, our preferences. We've lost the plot. In essence, it's actually frustratingly simple because following Jesus confounds the wise who went a path to secret knowledge. I like that. I can control that. It's not following Jesus. It's about just getting that secret knowledge. It frustrates the rich who want a reward that they can buy. Jesus gives it away for free <laughs> everywhere he can. It disappoints the perfectionist who want to earn it by how good they are. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. It challenges the tribalist who want a path of exclusivity. But Jesus throws it open. He says, Gentiles, Jews, Samaritans, come in. I want to again read the Supremacy of Christ passage where we see that everything is of Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. 
This is, uh, we don't have a slide for this, so just listen to these words. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." That's my Jesus. That's my Lord. Through him, by him, for him. People will want to distract you to themselves. Look at my story. Look how special I am. Listen to what I've seen, what I've experienced. But when people call us to themselves, they're missing the plot. In a church, I know you've seen it. There's this craze in the church, right, over the boy who came back from heaven. You remember this? where people began worshiping the reported experiences of a three-year-old boy, because it just kind of like, okay, good, there's something I can point to. There's some, somebody has a story, and I, I want to say, that's it, that's it. Now, when that boy grew up, he recanted the whole story. He said it was fictional, and he condemned Christian publishers and bookstores for selling heaven tourism books, which he said profit from lies. Wow, church, we lost the plot. We lost the plot. We made it about a little boy and something that he said rather than about Jesus, who is Lord of all. And we do this repeatedly. We're so easily distracted. And we want to look at people and we want to hear their best things because it's frustratingly simple to look at Jesus and say, he's Lord of this. Even without him recanting, shame on us. (laughs) We lost the plot. We look to experiences rather than to Jesus. This is my final point. This call back to wisdom, away from legalism, actually is meant to accomplish something that we don't usually associate with freedom. If we're talking about freedom here, and if we're using wisdom to get there, what is the point of this? What are we trying to see? Do whatever I want? See the kingdom of God come more fully? This passage says something different. Freedom from our own sensual indulgences that's not where I wanted this to go. (laughs) Do not eat. Do not drink. So that means what? I can eat and drink whatever I want. It's like I can eat every Swiss cake roll and not gain a pound. It doesn't work that way, right? That's not the call here. Our freedom is also a freedom from ourselves, a freedom from our own desires, a freedom from those things that, that rule our lives in a way that we might not even realize that we are ourselves still slaves to this. Once more, if you look at that Five Iron Frenzy song, and if you look at my electric guitar case in the back, you'll see the FIF sticker, which, you know, just saying. It cannot mean to serve ourselves. It doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean to give the license to seek ourselves in anything. That would be slavery to ourselves. It isn't free. Jesus Christ, the only thing that freedom means to me. There's wisdom here. We're prone to seek ourselves. We're prone to resort to whatever means we need. I, I was uh, into a game called StarCraft in college. 
um, frighteningly into it. It became a very, it was like kind of like even the first competitive video game thing. I got to say, I, I think I could have won. Like, like Leah will tell you, it was like obsessive levels of like oh, my friends, my dorm, like we were all just playing StarCraft all the time. It was one of the first like real good multiplayer things. But it begins impacting your relationships. It begins impacting like, you know, your studying and everything like that. My roommate and I were particularly into it. And he came home from class. I think he had failed a test. And he took his StarCraft CD, got a knife, scratched all the way down it because he's like, I will not let this rule my life anymore. And, and I led him to Christ. Like I, I'm, I'm watching this whole thing and I'm like, oh, I'm going to keep playing. <laughs> but here's the thing, right? He was doing a preventative measure for himself. It was a rule he was setting for himself. I will not give myself to this thing. And I was trying to like let my heart steer me towards something else. Is there a right or is there a wrong way? Is there a seasonal thing for when we use a rule versus when we, we do this? I, I think it's, it's very challenging. This is what it says, going back to the scripture. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body or of a StarCraft CD, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. What was the problem? Was the game the problem or was it something in me that was the problem? You know, like my problem was I wasn't free from this thing. I was enslaving myself to this. There was my, my desires to goof off, my desires to, to whatever were out of whack. And if I just limit myself, if I just put these rules on there, it might create this appearance of something, but it's just going to go towards the next outlet whenever it finds it. The heart is what the Lord is after here. This is wisdom versus rules. And it's challenging, right? Because sometimes you're like, well, I need to do that. I, I need to stop this. We need to, to do this. But this is, we have to understand the difference between rules versus wisdom. We want to punish ourselves, utilize these rules to dictate things to us. But Christ has always been concerned about the why. In IT security, we have different types of controls. Detective controls, which this alert you when something goes wrong. You know, like, hey, somebody's doing something bad. And then we have preventative controls where we stop people from doing something bad. You know what the problem with the preventative controls are? They sound better, right? They're stronger. Well, people find a workaround, yes, but they stop people from doing their jobs. <laughs> it's like, hey, I have to get to this website. It's blocked. Yeah, sorry. It's a preventative control. We don't allow you to go that. Well, there's something there I need. Well, you're not allowed. These preventative controls are often in conflict with the things that have to happen. Your body, your soul was made to be free, to enjoy love, to enjoy this world and its created glory, the food, the drink, company, humans, connection. And when we cut these things off, we might be cutting off the very life of Christ. This is nuance. This is hard. It takes wisdom to work this out. It's a hard challenge to say, be led by wisdom. Be led by your connection to the head, which is Jesus. Let him be Lord. Let him lead you towards the ways of love and truth and freedom. Not the freedom you think the world is going to give you. Not the freedom to get away with everything. Not freedom from consequences or freedom from accountability. But actual freedom. This is a beautiful passage. It is a challenging passage for us. So we're going to respond with ministry and worship.
Church, if you have come to Christ, you are free. You, that, that, that's the truth of it. Like, you are free. Worship team can come back up. The worst things that you've done cannot define you. The things behind you cannot control you. The judgment of the person to your left or to your right isn't meant to control you. So we want to worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, that's the invitation. What does it mean? What does it look like? What does it mean to actually be free? What does it mean for us today to explore Jesus is Lord, to not lose the plot, but to say, Jesus, whatever you will, however you will, whenever you will, here and now. Well, let's actually figure that out. We want to do ministry and worship and everything all at once. So I'm going to invite you just to stand up now. We're going to continue in worship. We're going to listen. I'm going to come up in a bit. We'll have communion. We'll have some words, some times to respond and everything like that. But let's just begin with this idea of saying, church, you are free. You are free. What does that look like? Let's embrace that. Amen.